Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. Kira Koto, um, Kojoska Jones, Tokoinga, and the medical director for Pinnacle, and here with Dave. Yeah, Morena Tato, uh, Dave Mapleston. I'm a part time GP, part time uh, work with Health and Disability Commission, uh, but interested in interested in medicine, really, still. Yeah, and, and, a, and a wide range of things. Yeah, we yeah, covered um, a few different things today a few organs, yeah. a few drugs, and a bit of death. Uh, in our November. 2022 clinical snippets. Far away, Dave, educate me. So the first uh, topic today is the liver, uh, but specifically hepatitis C. So we've had a bit of this over the last few years with the new antivirals, but um, there was a recent New Zealand doctor update, which just looked at the current state of hepatitis C testing and treatment in New Zealand. And it's perhaps not as bright as we might think, um, but included the following points. So Maverit is the drug of choice basically these days combined drug pill that does 98 to 99 percent effective after an eight-week course it's equally effective for all genotypes so the previous testing for genotype which then influenced which drug you used is no longer required and the combination is usually very well tolerated so ideally all patients should have a fibro scan before treatment to test for fibrosis and cirrhosis but um, certainly in lower risk patients and ast to platelet ratio index or apri is less accurate but useful if the patient's considered low risk and people under 35 are generally regarded as low risk. So the APRI calculators are found online. I've put a link to that in the in the snippets. Uh, and there are a few other useful calculators actually on the hepatitis C online uh, link that I've put on there. But basically you just need to know AST and platelet. There's a, a more detailed calculator which I've spoken about previously called the FIB4, which looks at the degree of calculated degree of fibrosis based on uh, AST, platelet count, uh, age, and ALT, but the APRI is the one recommended for uh, screening for hep C. Uh, a PCR test should be checked 12 weeks after completing treatment, uh, and annual HCV RNA assays or HCV core antigen assays are recommended for patients with ongoing risk factors, uh, basically or predominantly people who inject drugs because previous infection does not confer immunity. Right. Uh, and the failure rate, the one to two percent of people who are treatment failures require different treatment under specialist supervision and would require uh, referral to um, gastroenterology uh, for management. So where are we at in terms of cover? So it's estimated about 35 to 40 percent of New Zealanders with chronic HCV are undiagnosed still. Yeah. And overall, only 20 percent of the original estimated cohort have been treated to date which means around about 40,000 people in 2022 are still infected and needing diagnosis and treatment. So it's a big, it's a big cohort. Yeah, it's a um, debate about whether the original estimates of the population were, were accurate, I think, come up in these, in these conversations. And um, I think we need to, we need to accept that this is a, this is a definitely a, situation of case finding we need to be really proactive around trying to identify these people because this is a fatal illness that we've got a cure for 
It is. I think that more than 200 deaths a year from hepatitis C, and it's now the leading indication for liver transplantation in New Zealand. Uh, and the incidence of hepatitis C-related hepatocellular carcinoma in patients with chronic hep C remains at about 80 to 90 cases a year. So talking about case finding, um, one of the points that kind of concerned me slightly um, was the comment in this article, testing all patients with unexplained elevation of ALT beyond three months is essential. So those patients with a little, you know, ALT is a little bit up and, you know, have you actually checked it three months after you noticed that? But if it remains elevated after three months, we should be checking for hep C. Uh, anyone with a history of intravenous drug use, even if they've got normal liver function tests, uh, need to have a HCV antibody test and then confirmatory PCR if it's positive. And screening of the general population with average risk will still find one case in about 100 to 200 individuals. But 50 to 80% of people who inject drugs will be infected. So a big proportion. Yeah, um, and you can never tell. The people who inject drugs um, come from all walks of life. And, you know, maybe something that you did as a teenager and you're now in your 60s, not that I'm making any reference to myself at all. Uh, you know, you, you, you just, there's one of these things where you just can't, you shouldn't make assumptions about things. Hey, with that uh, elevated A, LT. LT is that because normally we're looking at three times the normal range yep no the, here they're saying uh, just an unexplained elevation of ALT beyond three months no no specific degree of elevation wow that that that's that is that is a change so uh, I guess you could you know I mean you could look at the well I just after what we discussed I, I was going to say we could look at the patient and say well is, is this likely or not but in fact you probably can't do that because we just don't know what people do behind closed doors, thank goodness. Uh, but um, there are some strategies to try and improve case detection uh, and treatment. So that includes point of care testing, especially in prisons, uh, using some of the PCR machines no longer required for COVID detection. Wow. Although at the time this was written, I think COVID, the, the impression was COVID was decreasing rather than the flare we're seeing at the moment. But increasing access to fibre scans at community clinics and loosening for the prescriber criteria to include pharmacists and nurse prescribers. More availability of those point-of-care testing kits um, as well. Um, yeah, I would think that would be, that would be quite a breakthrough in terms of accessibility. Yeah. And what I didn't realise is uh, that patients with hepatitis C can claim medical costs from WINS separate to the disability allowance. So there's a specific hepatitis C practitioner cost application. Hmm. Um, so that again, if if there's an impression that um, cost might be a barrier to someone taking treatment or undergoing appropriate monitoring while on treatment, they can go to WINS and get uh, payments that they don't have to pay back if it's part of hepatitis C management through the special needs grant, which I think is means tested. But I think then the means testing is quite generous. Yeah, um, for it. And then the, just a, uh, a link I've put to the hepatitis C, chronic hepatitis C health pathways page, which again is excellent. If you follow that through, it's totally clear, follow it through and you can't go wrong. Got lots of helpful practical advice. So uh, I think it would, it would increase your confidence to manage these patients once you've detected them. Yeah. Does this talk about the screening um, at all in the, and refer to the ALT? No, not no. specifically. Yeah. Uh, although I suspect it may do in the abnormal liver function page. Yeah, we'll have to double check that. Yeah. Um, so that's 
just yeah, hepatitis C update. Update. We're uh, making progress, but perhaps not as fast or as extensive as might be desirable. But um, I think yeah, just keep it in mind and uh, get out there and cure people. Yeah, not that many things we can cure so well, so easily. So uh, it's mm -hmm. a um, it's quite a positive thing to actually get involved. I think. Excellent. So we move on now to a drug, uh, and it's a drug that I've spoken about previously because it is a cause of complaints I see in my HDC work not infrequently, and that's lithium. Mm. Um, so generally, it's around the, the monitoring or lack of monitoring that, that the complaints originate. Uh, but this is, um, again, another recent New Zealand doctor article uh, looking at a pharmacotherapy case study of a patient stable on lithium requiring additional treatment for a comorbid condition. So this is another area where we can get tripped up in terms of what is recommended with respect to monitoring of lithium and some addition or subtraction of some other drugs. So the, the point, key points are that with appropriate monitoring, ACE inhibitors, um, ARB2 blockers, diuretics and NSAIDs can be safely used with lithium, but discontinuation of interacting medicines also requires laboratory monitoring. So they, they summarize the usual expected monitor, monitoring as three to six monthly, depending on stability, serum lithium, electrolytes and EGFR, six monthly thyroid function, calcium and weight, and annually if over age 40 or obese, HbA1c lipids and consider an ECG. But I think most interesting for me was recommendations when adding or removing some specific medications. So ACE inhibitors, adding in an ACE inhibitor, they suggest baseline serum lithium level and renal function tests, then weekly for wow. six weeks or until stable. And for at-risk people, consider further two weekly checks for six weeks. Those would be with some impairment of renal function. So 20 to 35% of people will have an increase in lithium levels with addition of an ACE, usually by about a third. Uh, and the interaction can be delayed for up to five weeks. So it's what's important not to be reassured by early steady lithium levels. Uh, the interaction appears less likely with ARB2 blockers, uh, but there have been reports of lithium level increases of up to 20% after up to five weeks of treatment with it being an, an ARB dose dependent interaction. So quite intensive monitoring, and I, I don't know that I've seen that so much in my review of, of notes over the the years. Um, second drug, diuretics, baseline serum lithium level and renal function tests, then weekly for four weeks. Uh, so they're saying if a thiazide needs to be introduced, there may be a rapid increase in serum lithium levels by 20 to 25% in the three to 10 days, but this effect may also be delayed. Uh, loop diuretics have less impact with potentially only up to a 20% increase in lithium levels and potassium sparing diuretics don't seem to have any effect. So thiazide is probably the, the biggest culprit mm. here requiring the monitoring. Uh, and NSAIDs, which I guess would probably be the most common one that would be co-prescribed, again, having a baseline serum lithium level, lithium level and renal function, then weekly for two weeks or until stable. And the interaction for decreasing lithium clearance and increasing its uh, toxicity is well described but unpredictable. Uh, so the average decrease in lithium clearance is usually around 10 to 25%, but there's a huge variation, especially in people with impaired renal function. So those, those would be uh, the population most at risk. Uh, it seems unlikely that celecoxib uh, or similar would be any different to tr traditional NSAIDs regarding the interaction or need for monitoring. So again, just a refresher on, um, uh, I guess, expected practice in terms of, of uh, monitoring when adding 
uh, or taking away some of these drugs that can affect lithium clearance or lithium metabolism. Yeah, it's, it's one of those drugs a bit like erythromycin. I always double check interactions and, um, you know, when, with, when I see somebody who's on erythromycin, there's something about it that just makes me think, just yeah. be careful here. Statin, um, statin, statin. Yeah, statin, statin, statin. And, the, um, and, uh, and since you've talked again about nitrofurantone as well, um, always sort of double checking the renal function there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we just have to be aware every time we, we put pen to paper, really, of, of you know, taking into account the, the patient's whole the whole medical history and, and uh, clinical scenario. Yeah, finger to keyboard these days, Dave. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there'll be an um, pharmacogenomic breakthrough at some stage where we'll be able to predict better who's going to be impacted by these sorts of interactions. I, I, I think, it, I mean, it pre presumably it depends um, how much the those specific enzyme pathways are involved with the um with the issue the renal clearance uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, rather than just the characteristic of the drug itself yeah uh, interestingly i was looking at a um a paper on um the link between prolonged use of omeprazole and increased risk of dementia which is now quite established and and quite significant but dependent to some extent on a gene, HPOA or something like that, which also predisposes to ischemic heart disease. So if you have two copies of this gene, which I've just found out Chris Hemsworth has, um, it, it increases your um, it increases your risk by almost, it almost doubles your risk in association with lithium. It doubles the risk of dementia in association with lithium. I'd forgotten I'd read that about Chris Hemsworth, so. Um, so should, anyway. I should have a gene tester. No, I mean, I don't know that about the ethics of, of being told you've got two copies of something that will yeah. increase your risk of dementia, but doesn't mean you will get dementia. No. no. Uh, access to medical abortion is um, topic number three. So from the start of this month, uh, both um, misoprostol and mifepristone, um, the two medicines needed for medical abortion, can be prescribed by a health practitioner and dispensed through a pharmacy. And this coincides with the final phase of the National Abortion Telehealth Service called DECIDE. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've put a link to the Ministry of Health website, which explains how this DECIDE came about. So it's provided, the DECIDE service is provided by Family Planning and Magma Healthcare, or Women's Clinic, um, who are contracted to the Ministry of Health. So they're both recognised as experts in abortion care and have experience in providing sexual and reproductive health and abortion services via telemedicine. The service is free for patients eligible for publicly funded health services, uh, apart from the pharmacy dispensing fees, and is currently around $950 for those not eligible for publicly funded health care. So the site, the website's quite interesting. I'd recommend going and just having a look at um, when your patient goes into this site, uh, what, they're, what they're offered, essentially taking them through the process of ensuring that, that, that a medical uh, termination is appropriate for them. Uh, and then how they get the drugs and who will be looking after them, essentially. Uh, so the main service provided, um, but that is not the only service, is direct access by the patient to medical abortion services up to 10 weeks gestation without the need for a face-to-face -face consultation. Uh, so the provider website includes details of the services provided and implies the service will order and manage all appropriate investigations, undertake counselling when requested, that's pre-decision, pre-procedure and post-procedure, 
provide access to medication required, including post-procedure contraception if requested, and post-procedure pregnancy test at day 21. And importantly for me, the site um, does state that during the entire procedure, you'll be supported by our team 24 hours a day via phone. We'll call you the day after you've taken the misoprostol tablets to check in and see if it sounds like you have miscarried. Your notes will only be shared with your GP or family doctor if you agree. And the, the service does have access to interpreters and the New Zealand Relay Service for patients with vision, hearing or speech issues. So again, I guess we may have patients who you know, have been pregnant and had a termination that we will, that we will not know about uh, by their choice. But I think having this, this um, additional access to the service must be beneficial to a certain proportion of the population. Yeah, it's. Uh, I know there's quite a bit of controversy about about the the limited availability of this through the telehealth service, and that some um, people have already been approached by patients asking for this service from their GP clinic, and because there's no funded um, program for this outside of the decide contract, um, then there's questions being raised about. How do we go about doing this? What's the training that we need? I know there's some online training being opened up through BPAC um, for GPs um, around around providing this service, um, but there's still ongoing debate about and 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 lobbying around providing the service for free in the community. Yeah, so I think yeah, primary uh, GPs have been left out of the loop. It seems to an extent, but the issue then becomes who provides a 24-hour cover. That, that is required essentially if you've got someone um, having a medical termination for those those couple of days or, or two or three days or whatever so that, I mean I, I presume that's an element that that might be cause for concern oh, and not I, not yeah. unresolvable not unresolvable absolutely not unresolvable but you know where 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 you should be able to provide patients with choice around the service provider and how they access services um then you know just limiting this to one process and one contract doesn't seem reasonable to me. So well, I think maybe watch this space, see how it works out um, oh, as a telehealth I, service. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I've got on my to-do list the to do the BPAC training, um, and um, I, I think knowing what's happening to my patients is just one thing. Um, but also, you know, the, these the questions are going to arise. It's going it, to this is going to become part of our armamentarium. Um, those of us that you know feel comfortable with getting involved with termination need to start learning about it. So this actually segues very nicely to an assisted dying reminder, uh, although we're at the, at the other end of life or death. So the, the End of Life Choice Act is now a year old. And in fact, in a couple of days' time, I'll be at the, the um, seminar. They're having to, um, to review what's been happening over the past year. But in my my other hat, my HDC work, we do we have seen a, a um, number of complaints uh, related to end of life choice, and one I guess it is a little concerning are the ones related to a GP becoming involved without any it seems any knowledge of the act or how the act applies, and therefore getting themselves into trouble by giving inappropriate information or not giving information that should be given, and this relates particularly to assessment of competency and what is regarded as or or, or um, assessment of eligibility for mm. assisted dying uh, and whether if you're not going to be taking any part in the process you should be 
making that decision uh, rather than referring to scans. So the the important things, again, is just as a reminder, if, if you do not wish to participate in the process, it's important you're aware of the details of the legislation and your responsibility in that regard. And again, um, the learning modules on Learn Online, brilliant, uh, easy, to, easy to follow, give you all the information you need. But at least if you download the Assisted Dying Care Pathways for Health Practitioners, which is a handbook on the ministry website, uh, and even out of that, if you just keep one page, which is the um, flow diagram for your responsibility or care pathways for the medical practitioner, which I've just linked and put up here. And it takes you through the process as a single A4 page to make sure that you are essentially doing the right thing. There is a little bit of ambiguity in wording uh, within the, the larger document in terms of if a patient is patently not eligible, you know, because they don't have an, a, um, a terminal disease or, you know, they've got a severe mental health issue or whatever, whether even if you're not going to participate, you have a, you know, it's reasonable for you to say, look, there's no point in going any further because you're not eligible or whether you should still be referring to scans for a um, uh, an attending medical practitioner to make that decision. And hopefully I'm going to clear that up on Saturday at the uh, the seminar just to find out precisely how far we can go if we're not going to be involved in terms of saying to the patient you're eligible or you're not eligible. Yeah, um, I mean, it does seem uh, like I know that the it's next year that the legislation is reviewed um, formally, I think. And, um, you know, the questions like that really need to be need to be clarified. Um, yeah. And it's understandable, I guess, that those issues will come out of the first year of, of new legislation yeah. Uh, yeah, when things aren't entirely clear. But the, um, again, the main, the main points to make again are that our medical practitioners who lack the appropriate skills or experience um, to provide assistant dying services are advised to tell the person the reason they don't provide the service and inform them of the SCANS group as a minimum. Mm. And medical practitioners following this care pathway are advised not to discuss a person's eligibility for assisted dying. This is these are direct quotes from the from the handbook. There's a formal process for this that is outlined in the care pathway for medical and nurse practitioners as providing assisted dying services. But then the third bullet point, which which I think is the ambiguity, says medical practitioners may consider it appropriate to discuss eligibility if the person raising assisted dying is clearly not eligible i.e. is under 18 years old, is not a New Zealand citizen, or does not have a terminal illness. Medical practitioners should only discuss eligibility if they are competent and confident to do so. So I, 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 you may not see that as ambiguous. I think from a, from a legal perspective, it could be regarded as being a little less clear than it perhaps should be. Uh, I, think, I think under 18 and not a New Zealand citizen should be pretty straightforward. Um, although actually, whether you're a, yeah, you have to be a citizen. There are aspects of visas which complicate the issue. Uh, so yeah, that's that that isn't necessarily completely clear cut to me anyway. Not having a terminal illness, don't we all have a terminal illness? Well, that's right, we do, right? but but hopefully yeah. more than six months. Yeah. <laughs> So number five, again, this, this one I found really interesting because uh, it's a pancreatic cancer a study, a recent one that's, that's um, come out of the UK, mainly because, again, probably one of the more common delayed diagnosis of cancer complaints yeah. I get in HDC is delayed diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And I think it's something like 80% of patients 
at the time of diagnosis of pancreatic cancer will have advanced disease oh, just, 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 just yeah. because of the, the way it presents really. Yeah. But um, this study looked at a relationship between weight loss, um, high blood sugar and diabetes in relation to a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. So it found that at the time of diagnosis, the average BMI of people with pancreatic cancer was nearly three units lower than people who did not have cancer. No surprise there. Hmm. But raised glucose levels were detected even earlier from three years before the diagnosis. So the analysis revealed that weight loss in people with diabetes was associated with a higher risk of developing pancreatic cancer than in people without diabetes. And increasing glucose levels in people without diabetes was associated with a higher risk of pancreatic cancer than in people with diabetes. It all gets quite confusing, um, but they, the results suggest, according to this study, that unexplained weight loss, mainly in people with diabetes, but not exclusively, should be treated with suspicion also increasing glucose levels, but especially in people without weight gain, should be considered a potential red flag for pancreatic cancer. So even if the, you don't reach the threshold for diabetes, increasing glucose levels, which are so variable anyway. That's right. Yeah. But I, I guess if you have somebody who has absolutely no weight gain, and maybe you think, well, why, you know, why are they, has your HbA1c gone up from 36 to 39? You know, is that is could that potentially be an issue? Yeah. Okay. So, so not talking about glucose, but HbA1c. Um, yeah. I think yeah. they're looking at looking at that as opposed to specific glucose uh, yeah. point. Of, you know, at that at this point, glucose levels. Okay. So okay. it raises 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 some issues, but um, up to date, looks at this puts out some some a, quite a different view on things as they stand at the moment, which is. They say at least some data suggests that the risk of pancreatic cancer is especially elevated in older adults with new onset diabetes and a previously healthy weight with otherwise unexplained unintentional weight loss. But whether these patients have a high enough risk of pancreatic cancer to justify screening is not established. Uh, thus, screening for pancreatic cancer is not warranted in older, otherwise asymptomatic adults with new onset atypical diabetes. This recommendation is consistent with guidelines from the US Preventative Services Task Force, which specifically recommend against screening for pancreatic cancer in asymptomatic adults not known to be at high risk because of family history or inherited genetic syndromes, including those with pre-existing or new onset diabetes. So we've got these mixed messages. And what I'd imagine is that as more data comes through from studies over the next few years, the, the picture may change and it may become clearer as to who we should be screening and, and not screening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the guidelines often lag behind the evidence, don't they? Yeah, um, correct. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, particularly, and, and screening is such a, you know, such a fraught, uh, fraught issue that, you know, you've got to, there's all these other factors that come into play as to whether something should be screened for or not. Yeah. The, um, but what, okay. What comes out yeah. of this in terms of what I've looked at, um, on complaints, particularly about delayed diagnosis of cancer, is how infrequently unexplained weight loss is presented by the patient or asked about. And I've seen cases even when it's been a very conscientious, usually a, a, nurse, tri a nurse doing triage before consultations who's recorded wonderfully um, significant weight loss and sequential weights over six months to a year, and no one's no one's picked up on it at all. So I guess... The message there is that there is certainly value in asking that question uh, of people with unexplained symptoms that could just perhaps be related to some occult malignancy 
and certainly looking at what weight you've got on file to see if there has been loss. Wouldn't it be good to have a PMS that actually sort of red flagged that for you as a question? You know, this, but there's been a 15% drop in weight, you know, um, over the last 12 months. Red flag, you know, ask this, ask about this next time that they're in if, if it's un, to see if it's unexplained. Yeah. And I, I think that wouldn't be too difficult to incorporate. No. I wouldn't have thought. I, but, so. um, I mean, a lot of the time, obviously, it's a positive thing that we're, we're wanting, but then it's, um, it's deliberate weight loss rather than unexplained weight loss if it's yeah, yeah. Know, part of your diabetes management or whatever. I, but again, you know, we've diagnosed somebody with diabetes. We put them on a li- on a new lifestyle. They start you losing weight, and you don't you think, to lose weight. Yeah. yeah, and you don't think, you know, it's the pancreatic cancer that's actually making them lose weight rather than yeah. the the deliberate um, change in diet. So, uh, yeah. and just to round things off, another update. This one from um, MedSafe around quetiapine, use of quetiapine. So they're talking about the uh, increased risk of gestational diabetes if quetiapine is used during pregnancy. Uh, And I think that there's enough evidence now that they are recommending that the pregnancy section of quetiapine data sheets should be updated to reflect this. Mm. But interestingly, they talked about um, a 2018 study which looked at quetiapine use um, generally in New Zealand uh, for unapproved uses, including sleep and anxiety, and noted that use is increasing over time and it is of concern because the evidence uh, for effectiveness and safety which impacts the risk-benefit balance is not overly robust for some of those off-label uses. Mm. Uh, and just saying that pay, our prescribers should take this into consideration when discussing treatment choices. So the study showed that 72% of quetiapine prescribing was off-label, yeah. uh, 56% initiated in primary care, and only 11% had a patient note indicating off-label use was discussed. Uh, and perhaps of most concern, only 2.3% underwent, underwent recommended metabolic, metabolic monitoring and there's certainly some evidence that the known adverse metabolic effects of quetiapine can occur at low doses. Wow. Uh, so the conclusions included prescribers should be aware of the currently available risk-benefit profile for the relevant non-approved indication in each patient, uh, noting the rationale behind their decision to use this drug at this dose. And even when off-label low doses are being prescribed, the prescriber should be aware that the dose equivalent for the elderly patient, especially female elderly, is about half that used for the younger patient and that the elderly are at increased risk of the adverse effects. Um, and I've put a link to the recommended metabolic, mo- metabolic monitoring from BPAC, which is old, but still current when compared with newer, newer international guidelines, except they talk about serum glucose rather than HbA1c. Um, so with that reminder, which takes us from lithium to quetiapine and a few bits in between, that's it for November. Thanks. Dave, that's really, I mean, at Katiapin, you definitely see it in, in um, the prescribing. I think that it's interesting that most of the prescriptions given are off-label. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really interesting, really interesting. Hey, thanks, Dave. Thank you very much. I know that you're having December off, and um, thanks for um, the work that you do. This is absolutely awesome. The, I think um, the one of the key takeaways for me from today is well there's the assisted dying I think that's really important to do that learn online course and just sort of know know what the situation is there for you what you can what you can and can't say and how, how much to get involved with that don't be afraid of um 
uh, of using of referring people to the scans group i know that they're really open to that and they'll they'll pick up and run with them um, with any inquiries that your patient makes i think the key thing for there is not to raise assisted dying as a as a treatment option with your patients um that it ha there has to be raised by them um because you, you know there's all sorts of pitfalls in um in in doing that we talked about hepatitis c lithium access to medical abortion as well as um that issue around pancreatic cancer which is one of those heart sink diagnoses that um I, I'm, I'm sure i'm not alone in pretty much every case that i've ever diagnosed has been at a late stage and um you know you look back over sort of vague abdominal pains that have gone on for years and that you might have investigated but it just nothing has ever shown up and you you know you sort of think well the book, there's got to be a better way of us finding out about it. That's a well, I think that the, the um, you know, the rates, of, that, that statistic has remained constant over many years. So even with, yeah. you know, more advanced imaging, it doesn't, hasn't made a huge difference. And I think, in fact, it's probably opportunistic detection when, when you have a CT or MRI for something else that, that might give you the best chance of survival. But uh, how often does that happen? Well, have a great end to 2022 and we'll see you in 2023. Thank you very much. And thanks to all the, the listeners and viewers. And uh, we'll try and get some exciting stuff for uh, 2023. Thank you. Got it. Thanks, David. Got it. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Ka kite anō.